Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is producer Lan Lee welcoming you to today's Blue Barrel Conversation distributed through NBN. If you want to catch all of our episodes, you can search for the Blue Barrel Podcast, that's Blue the Color, B-E-R-Y-L, or find all of our episodes on PierceSalguero.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Blue Barrel a podcast for intelligent conversations about Buddhism, Asian medicine, and embodied spirituality. I'm your host, Dr. Pierce Salguero, a professor of Asian studies and health humanities at Penn State's Abington College outside of Philadelphia. Today I sit down with Francis Garrett, a scholar of Tibetan culture, history, and language. We talk about how Francis's interest in embodiment and movement and how her experiences as a ballet dancer, surfer, and rock climber connect with her work on religion and healing. Our conversation focuses on her commitment to an embodied and trauma-aware pedagogy, and how in the interest of flourishing, she engages the whole person in the learning process. Along the way, we talk about Tibetan bards, sacred mountains, and the importance of walking. Enjoy the conversation, and if you wanna hear more from experts on Buddhist medicine and related topics, Subscribe to Blue Barrel for monthly episodes. Hi, Francis. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really happy to have this conversation. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to get into it. But maybe before we do, you can just quickly introduce yourself to the audience, just who you are and where you're at these days. Sure. I teach at the University of Toronto in Canada, and I teach Buddhist studies, Tibetan history, Tibetan culture and language. I'm also currently the director of an undergraduate minor program called Buddhism, Psychology and Mental Health that ties together some of my research interests in medicine and healing and Buddhism. So yeah, I've been here for about 20 years. Before that, I was a graduate student at University of Virginia. And before that, I grew up in Oregon, went to college in New York City. And uh, you and I met at University of Virginia when you were doing your PhD there. 
and I was doing my master's degree. And I don't remember if we took classes together, but I do remember that you were working on your dissertation right around the time I was thinking about what I wanted to get into. Um, I had just come back from Thailand and was very interested in intersections between Buddhism and medicine. But I also remember I had just read Michel Strickman's book, Chinese Magical Medicine, which talks about the history of Buddhism and medicine in China. And I was interested in in exploring that topic. I was also interested in intersections between Buddhism and medicine in Tibet. And I remember hearing that there was this graduate student that was working on the Tibetan side of Buddhist medicine. And I remember thinking, okay, then I'll go into the Chinese side. Little did I know how huge the the subject of Tibetan Buddhism and medicine actually would become. And so many people have been in the field. But I, but I, I do credit you somewhat with influencing the direction of my future study and pushing me away from Tibet towards China. It's funny to think back to those days. In 20 years, a lot has happened in the field. To think to those days before all of your books and before all of the other publications in the field that have come out, I guess, really just in the last 20 years, it was such a different space in those days when we were in school. Yeah, I mean, there really wasn't very much scholarly research in these areas at all, really. And I think of you as one of the early pioneers in this field. Well, if 20 years ago could be early. So I want to talk to you mainly about recent developments in your pedagogy. But I was thinking that maybe we should talk just a bit about, you know, the work you did for your dissertation and for your first book, because I think think it's related. Yeah, it was a while ago. And so I I don't often think back to those days, but I guess I was interested um, in just broadly the differences between religion and medicine or Buddhism and healing. And I came at that through the topic of embryology, which I was thinking about as, as a part of the discipline or the field of medicine. But as I was reading in Indian texts and Tibetan texts about embryology, it seemed clear that it was really a philosophical topic or a religious topic or a topic relating to practice, religious practice or spiritual development. And so that got me thinking about how we understand what counts as medicine or what counts as religion and how those disciplinary divisions and divisions of thought and practice are different at different times in our own history, of course, but then also certainly in other other cultures and other times. And so embryology was just case study to think about how we draw lines between religion and medicine more generally. And that has then continued to be an interest of mine since then, as I've looked at other types of healing that wouldn't necessarily fall directly within our own idea of what counts as medicine or healing, such as, for example, nature practices or healing waters, healing springs, interactions with the natural elements, as well as embodied practices, movement, including things like yoga, but things in the, in the Tibetan tradition, like manipulating the inner winds of the body or the breath. And so in what cases are all of those considered healing or part of medicine or or to what extent are they part of religion and what anyway is the difference between those categories that's been an enduring interest of mine that's also an enduring interest of mine and um, listeners to this podcast will remember that we actually talked about some of those issues with bill mcgrath on the second episode of the podcast as well so it's sort of a theme here exploring the 
boundaries between different fields of knowledge, to what extent these boundaries are inscribed by our own practices as scholars, to what extent they are fa- to be found in the sources themselves, to what extent it makes sense to adopt these categories or not, is all things that we've been exploring and debating over the last, last number of episodes. I did just want to mention the title of your book, which is Religion, Medicine, and the Human Embryo in Tibet. And that was published in 2008 with Rutledge. And I'm wondering if you want to talk about any other publications and research projects before we get into teaching. Well, I've come at some of the same issues from different directions. So, for example, I did a project on the Gesar epic, which is a Tibetan and inner Asian epic tradition that's still practiced by bards who travel around Tibet and inner Asian regions, Mongolia also. And a collection of those stories I found um, to involve healing practices of different kinds, which I thought was fascinating. A lot of it was veterinary information, how to treat diseases and injuries of horses, especially for nomadic Tibetans. But a lot of it also was medical information directly from the Gyushi, from the canonical texts of Tibetan medicine. And in the telling of those stories, these bards who would be sitting in nomadic camps or in tents singing their songs would sing about how to diagnose and heal illness. And it turns out that there are lots of bards who do this, and there are different traditions. And some of the interesting questions included, like, how did these often illiterate singers get this information? And then, of course, how was the Gesar epic used as a medium of communication among nomadic Tibetans? That's really interesting. And I, I like how this project is similar to your first book based on your dissertation is exploring how medical information finds its way into different genres than strictly medical texts or medical manuals. It's really fascinating how broadly medical information spreads throughout a culture. Maybe it's the same in our culture, right? We have all these uh, TV shows like Grey's Anatomy or whatever that are, that are filled with very technical medical information that people consume for entertainment. Exactly. And with the internet, of course, medical information is now no longer the held only by specialists, right? It's, it's accessible to everybody, which is one thing I was interested in is what's the difference between medical texts compared to medical information on the internet or medical information sung by bards who are traveling to villages. And most recently, I've been working on a project on hidden lands in the Himalayan region. So as I was doing that project on the Gesar epic, I came to understand how Tibetans really valorize the Himalayan regions, which are these ecologically rich and medicinally rich places in the world where medicinal plants grow that are used by people all over Asia, both Indians to the south and South Asians, and also Chinese and Tibetan doctors and medicinal plant users to the east and north. And there's another tradition in which those plants are talked about in Tibetan literature, and that's this hidden land tradition, which is a tradition of stories and pilgrimage practices where Tibetans would come from the highlands, the plateau, down into the mountains and the rich parts of the Himalayan regions, like in Sikkim and Nepal, northern Nepal and um, northern India, and find these, find the insides of mountains So the tradition is that the insides of mountains are the places where the most amazing medicinal plants can be grown. And so it is a tradition of storytelling 
in Tibetan texts going back to the 12th or century or earlier, in which people describe in great detail the medicinal plants and the lush vegetation that's found inside mountains in these utopian paradises. And so religious specialists who have an aptitude for finding these places are the ones who can go to the door of the mountain and open that door with a key and then lead their followers inside the mountain to live out their lives in eternity inside this paradise. And so that's a project I'm working on now. And so we had a conference on this a number of years ago, and quite a few scholars have contributed to an edited volume on this topic, describing the hidden lands and the medicinal plants that can be found inside them, and the healing traditions that are associated with those regions across the Himalayas from east to west. Yeah. And just to mention the the title of the book is Myth and History, Transformations of Bayul Through Time, published by Brill in 2020. And I, as you were describing these hidden lands, Francis, I was just curious. I mean, these are stories, they're myths. Are there also practices? Is it some like visionary travel to the insides of these mountains? Yeah, there are stories of great Tibetan saints who describe their travel to these places, sometimes in their minds, imagined travel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sometimes there are some actual trips that they make. So that's another case where medical information and healing information can be used to attract followers and to inspire people to move, to travel, to take action. Yeah, so this I know this is a point of scholarly interest for you too, but I also know that you've you've traveled widely in the Himalayas and so is that something that's been more recent this um, engagement in outdoors and trekking and hiking and so forth or is that something that you've been, you've done for a long time? I did quite a bit of that travel as a graduate student spending a lot of time in remote regions of Tibet and traveling off-road or hiking, spending time in places where you needed to walk to get there. And then at the same time, reading about Tibetan saints doing a similar thing, walking for long distances in across the Tibetan land. And I was thinking at that time about the process of measuring the land with your body. There's a, a recent book that's just come out by a, Tibet, a young Tibetan writer with that title. And I remember seeing Tibetan pilgrims who do full body prostrations for long distances, for weeks, months. They travel by, by prostration. And just thinking about how we mark the land with our bodies and we stamp the land with religion, with Buddhism. And that's one of the ways that Buddhism traveled across Asia, across Tibetan and Himalayan regions in particular. And so this interconnection between the body and the land is something I was really interested in when I, it, it, back in those early days. And I would say maybe even before that, I was interested in the the way that the body knows and learns and moves in the world, the way we know the world through embodied movement as a dancer. So I was a serious dancer, ballet dancer in my high school and early college years. I spent really more time dancing than I did studying or doing anything else, and that was my only true love of the, in those days. Although I didn't continue dancing, I did continue to have a love and appreciation for the way that our bodies 
can move in the world and how that has an impact on the way we can perceive things and what we can know and how we can exist in the world, which seems obvious. Of course, we all all have bodies, we're all embodied. But I think as academics, we often think that knowing occurs only in the head. And I think as a dancer, I've always known that knowing occurs in the body. I, I wanted to mention the name of the book that you just mentioned in passing. We, we Measure the Earth with Our Bodies by Tsering Yangzom Lama. And that was published in, recently in 2022. Um, but to dig in a little bit more to what you were just uh, referring to. So my own background, I, I've done a lot of yoga since I was very young. And so I think I have my own experience of what the body knows that the that the mind can't quite put words around. But I'm, I'm wondering, what does a dancer know? What do you know through dance that other scholars or other people in general may not be attuned to? That's an interesting question. I think although dance is a visual art form, f- in a sense, for people who are watching it, when you're doing it yourself, it's your vision is not the primary sense. It's It's more, you have more of a sense of, say, rhythm or timing or time as well as a sense of spatial awareness of others around you, of the space around you, of distances, um, and of how your body interacts with all kinds of auditory haptic stimuli that come in from the outside, but also then stimuli that come from the inside of your body. So you have to, as a dancer, have a deep awareness of the inside of of your musculature and your skeletal structure, and then to tie all those with an awareness of movement to rhythm or to timing or in space. It's very complicated. It's a complicated and rich way of interacting with the world and with other people if you're dancing with other people and of course it's it's the way that we all exist we all exist in space and in rhythm in time and with these internal and external stimuli but we don't all think about that as much as a dancer and there's also then an element of practice that is important in dance of course because you don't just I mean, you can just get up there and dance, but cultivated a, da- a dance practice like ballet is something that you train in for many, many years. So if like martial arts or something, through um, many years of very strict training, you release a kind of freedom and creativity that is enabled by that training. And so that too is something that I think we can relate to as people who study Buddhism or think about Buddhist practice, very similar ideas and experiences. But it's that all of those kinds of things, I would know only as someone who had done dance, but you could know that also from martial arts or sports or even playing music or other kinds of embodied practices that people do. Yeah, but like you're saying, dance in particular ballet is like a specific training that you've, you're really developing a sensitivity or a certain kind of attunement that I'm sure is different than if you played lacrosse or soccer or what have you. Uh, so in my experience in the practice of yoga, I feel like you attune yourself to certain kinds of configurations, certain kinds of flows, certain kinds of um, sensations, certain kinds of maybe you could say energies within the body 
but you're really over time i think moving as you move deeper and deeper into those experiences you move into a kind of an emptiness within the body that you like lose the materiality of the body and it becomes more and more just a flow of emptiness or a flux of energy through empty space when you were talking about the experience of being a dancer it sounds like it's it's more physical than that but also more relational than that maybe yoga is very inward and dance is more connected with the with the external world and with other dancers that you're interacting with I, I guess i'm wondering like what happens to your sense of embodiment what happens to your experience of your body as you progress in dance what kind of experience of self or of embodiment does that lead to yeah that's an interesting question I think the more skilled you are at any thing like that, any movement practice like that, dance, but also music. I've talked to musicians who have this experience too. As you no longer have to focus on the technical issues of what you're doing with your body, you do lose the, the usual sense of self or self-consciousness, self-awareness that we have normally. And I guess I found this very interesting because as I was a dancer, I was studying religious studies in college and I, I took a course on religious experience where we talk about the ineffable and the different kinds of like disembodied or non-cognitive, non-verbal experiences that people describe when they talk about religious experience in literature, saints of all different religious traditions. And so I did connect with that type of conversation in those courses by thinking exactly about what you're describing, which is this feeling of being able to kind of lose oneself in the movement. So I do know what you mean. Yoga, as you're saying, maybe is more inward focused. Dance is, in a sense, it, it can be inward focused, but it also is a communication form. But what is it that you're communicating? It's not words, but it's emotion. And so you're communicating love or anger or joy or something with every small gesture of your body. And that is a really amazing thing to experience. But every movement activity or music, I think, would have some version of this or some type of this experience. And so, for example, other things I've taken up later are rock climbing and surfing. And at that time, I, I really was struck by how when you're rock climbing outside on the face of a rock, you're like very far off the ground, it's quite terrifying. You really are only focused on your movement and the rock. And you have this really merging of experiences or merging of awareness or something because you can't think of anything else. All you can think of is like, what's the next movement I have to make? And so I think that's why that kind of activity can be very addicting to people because it's that in the moment awareness or in the moment experience that we don't often have in other aspects of our regular day-to-day -day lives. Surfing is the same way where you're just in the water. So I was interested, especially in rock climbing and surfing as connecting to water and rock, these natural features of the environment in a different way than we do normally. So being immersed in water and like terrified and afraid and but then also exhilarated to have all of my emotions in the context of water was is interesting about surfing. And rock is another thing to be kind of to have this new type of perception of rocks, which are like history all around us. And so I saw myself when I was climbing 
a rock to be like interacting with history in a way that was different than I had normally done as a historian sitting in my office at my desk. Oh, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. And it's also for me bringing up perhaps within Buddhist circles or maybe Buddhist studies circles where, where certain kinds of activities and certain kinds of loss of self are valued, right? Like seated meditation and the kinds of experiences you can have with, with meditation are considered to be quite important. And But then surfing wouldn't necessarily be considered nearly as important within Buddhist circles, right? But I think what we're getting at here is just like um, appreciation for the kinds of transcendent experiences you can have just just through really intense physical activities i mean just the the concentration the the getting out of your own self-consciousness and your own decision-making process and so forth and getting getting into a flow state and and also some different sense of your own body it's interesting where buddhism draws lines and and or different traditions you could say draw lines in different places of what's valued and what's not valued in terms of these kinds of experiences. Yeah, but then bringing it back to Buddhist communities, they do all kinds of physical practices, embodied practices. So I think it's really the legacy of how Buddhism came to North America or Europe that makes us think that meditation is the primary activity of Buddhists. Of course, it's not. Like it, Ritual practices, which are embodied practices largely, are, are the main practices for Buddhists in Asia. If we start noticing the the ways that people embody their religious practice or their religious identity, we will see them doing all kinds of things. We will see, we can see in some cases, every moment of the day being shaped by some sort of embodied reaction to or interaction with religious symbols, religious ideas, religious figures. Absolutely. And where does that leave us Buddhist studies scholars, right? I mean, our our own embodied practice is largely sitting at the desk typing into a keyboard right but but it sounds like you have have really thought much more deeply about what what you can learn through the body not only observing what tibetans are doing with their bodies but also in your own scholarly practice you know using your body in unique ways what have you learned along those lines i feel like i'd like to say i wish i had learned more <laughs> because, or I'm still learning about that. Certainly in my teaching, I've really tried to focus on this topic, on helping students see and think about and feel what it, what it can mean to learn with the body, what it does mean for them, and to just bring that forth for them has been increasingly the focus of my teaching in the last number of years. So I guess I'll back up and say that I've always done a lot of research on teaching. I do a lot of reading on pedagogical methodologies, and largely that's because I am a deeply introverted person, and so teaching is difficult for me. And so I have to, I feel that I have to do research on how to do this work of teaching because it doesn't come to me naturally. And so I've done research in outdoor education, place responsive learning, partly to figure out what is it that I was getting out of that experience of traveling and living in Asia for so long. But then also in terms of teaching, because now I've a few times been brought students to do these trips in the Himalayas to go hiking or to travel around and visit mostly. 
And so I'm, I'm trying to think for them, too. How can I articulate what, what it is that they're getting from this experience of being in the place and learning in this place-responsive way? So learning about place embeddedness while you go to a different place and then coming back to your own place and thinking of bringing back some of those things that you've learned about the interaction that you have to place, for example. And so to think about that, not just as like, I read a book with my eyes, and then I sit, I think about it in my head, but actually to be interacting with these places with all of our senses and to notice how other people are also interacting with their places um, in similar ways or different ways. And so I have found students really very interested and also very engaged when you ask them about what types of experiences they have of their bodies. They have a lot to say. And they, they are very richly engaged in this area. I mean, people are really thinking a lot about gender and sexuality now in new in really new ways. That's a very embodied experience for students, very alive for young people now. People are thinking more about anti-racist and decolonizing models of existing and interacting with in community. And that's also something in which your embodied like experiences of racism, this is an embodied experience. People, students are very aware of um, trauma and the effects of trauma on the body. And they're interested in learning about that. If it's not something they've fully explored, they're very interested in learning about it because it's kind of in the news, in the media a lot. Yeah, I was thinking about trauma as well as a, as a topic that I wanted to talk with you about. And I believe you are the first person that I ever heard mention the phrase trauma-aware pedagogy. Maybe it was in a social media post or somewhere that, that you said that. And it really inspired me to look into what trauma-aware pedagogy would look like and what and I discovered that there is a whole field there, that there is some literature around that topic. So I, I want to thank you for attuning me to trauma-aware pedagogy. And I'm wondering if you can give us sort of, you know, to the listeners who may not have heard that phrase before, or might not really be aware of the ways that trauma can impact a student's ability to learn in the classroom, if you can just give us like a couple of headlines or bullet points about what, what we're talking about when we say trauma-aware pedagogy. So it's it, it requires to do trauma-aware teaching, requires you to think about students as individuals with full lives and to have some, and to care about how their lives are having an, an impact on how they're able to learn. And so if you study a bit about the effects of trauma on our experiences every day, you can quickly learn how school is really traumatizing for students. And being in a classroom is a very scary place for many students because there's this authority figure, there's the threat of grades, there's coercion of tests. It's really a coercive model. It's a model of coercively controlling students by the teacher or by the institution. And so if you recognize then the effect that that has on their ability to learn, if we're scared, you might know in your own experience, like if you feel scared or threatened by someone in in your environment or by your environment in some way, you are going to focus, your body is going to focus mainly only on its survival. And so it's really not a conducive environment for learning to put students in this place. And so I would encourage anyone to learn a little bit about the relationship between trauma and education and learning. And there's lots of easy to access sources on this topic because it really makes you think then, how could you change your classroom practices to instead make the classroom a place where students 
can, their bodies, their brains actually physically can learn more easily. And why would we not do that as teachers? And so to set up a trauma-aware classroom is to think about creating a space of safety for our students, creating a relationship of trustworthiness between you and the students, between the students and each other, creating opportunities for connection and community building and collaboration, for helping students to feel empowered because one of the experiences of trauma is to feel disempowered. And then to think about how students can develop what's sometimes called resilience or the ability to grow and change in positive directions. And then related to that is some kind of necessary focus on social justice or like accessibility and equity, because that's just kind of a foundational requirement for students to feel safe and empowered. And once you set up that environment, it's much easier for people to just naturally learn what's what you want them to learn or what they want to learn i think maybe that last piece is the thing that brought me on board with trauma aware pedagogy is because i i already was very aware of and very involved in diversity and equity and inclusion kind of initiatives and thinking about the trauma of gender discrimination and racial cultural linguistic bias and so forth you know so i was already thinking along those lines and already trying to redress that in the classroom but but not having actually thought about the even if this classroom is set up in a certain way where people are included and it's a safe space that that the students coming into that classroom still carry within their bodies the the stress the anxiety the the physiological responses to trauma so so it's, turning my classroom from a space that is inclusive and and welcoming to actually turn it into a space of healing i think is an additional step that you attuned me to and so i think the the work that you're doing bringing bringing that into our field is is a great service that you're doing for us yeah thank you for clarifying that or or bringing that forward because that is really important so the other piece is, as you're saying, to recognize, to think about where did students come from, like five minutes before they can't, they entered your classroom? Are they ready to start learning? Are their bodies capable of learning at that moment? Probably not. If they've just been on the subway for two hours, or if they've just broken up with someone, or if they've just had some aggressive interaction with something, as you say, like, why don't we allow people to come into this space and first prepare them physically for learning or give them the opportunity to prepare for learning. Like, for example, you would give them a pencil or some paper or something like you need to have the tools for learning. You also need to have the like, the body for learning. And so it's not so complicated to set that up in a f- matter of moments, minutes even, at the beginning of a classroom or in in our classroom space. I'm just thinking about when I was hearing about your developments in this this area was also at a time when we were having a global pandemic and we were having literal riots in Philadelphia over police brutality and we were having just the, the whole national context around the Trump presidency and all of the traumas were really laid bare. And so it was very obvious to me that students were being battered left and right by all of these different forces and then they come into the classroom you know i tried to make my classroom a welcoming space but then shifting from just being sort of neutral and welcoming to something that was more intentionally focused around healing i think was was an important shift Um, and i've noticed i think recently that you've shifted your terminology from trauma aware pedagogy to something like a pedagogy of flourishing is that is that an intentional move on your part to bring out a, a, a different side of this 
Yeah, I was really inspired by the work of Dr. Sean Ginwright, who is now at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. And he talks about, he has a critique of trauma-aware pedagogy or trauma-aware practices, saying that it really focuses on deficits or on what's going wrong with people. And not to say that it's not important to acknowledge all of that for the reasons we've discussed, but his reframing of the idea is to call it healing-centered engagement. And so I really like his model of connecting with students where they are and trying to find out what's going right with people and what's working well with people now. Not that we should hide what's not working or what's going wrong, but to really bring forth and celebrate what's what's working well for people is his approach. And I would encourage people to check out his work. And then teaching for flourishing is another way that some people are reframing this desire to think about teaching that involves collaboration rather than competition, that involves like being comfortable with these emergent outcomes instead of rigidly thinking that only certain outcomes are acceptable, teaching students to cultivate dispositions in addition to delivering content and developing skills or believing that education should be transformational and rec- and involve the whole person, the physical, mental, emotional, lives, social contexts, life experiences, and then really thinking about the process of education or of, of what happens in a classroom more so than even the product, which is like the grade from the test or something. So... I think we've got three terms or three different kind of styles of pedagogy on the table that we've talked about. There's embodied pedagogy, trauma-aware pedagogy, and now we're talking about healing-centered or pedagogy of flourishing. I'm sure some of our listeners would love to hear some specific interventions or specific additions to the syllabus or assignments or particular ways that you you have addressed those three things. I know people can read more and we'll have the links in the show notes, but if you if you could maybe just give us a flavor of what sorts of things you're talking about here specifically and maybe some starting points for people to experiment with in those areas. What do you think? Yeah, so I completely redid all of my teaching a few a number of years ago to focus on creating a classroom for flourishing or well-being. And so that means I completely redid the content of all my classes. I really now am innovating, creating new models to uh, new ways to address this thing. And so there are some procedural issues that are just standard across the board. So for example, radical flexibility and options for assignments, trusting students by not requiring any kind of accessibility evidence or so trusting that students are the experts on their own experiences and their own needs, thinking about very carefully about what the syllabus is communicating. So syllabi that look like contracts, legal contracts, those are scary and threatening. So I'm trying to think of new policies that really affirm and support disabled students or students with accessibility needs in particular. Paying really close attention to representation in the content of my courses, the authors of articles, books that we read, videos, whatever, podcasts, those that is part of our course community. And those people should reflect the student body to, as much as possible. And this sometimes means really changing what I can teach. Because in our field, for example, if you want to teach on, I taught a class on interdependence, so a Buddhist philosophy course, a lot of Buddhist philosophy readings in English 
are by white men. And so I really had to change the way I taught the course in order to not have readings all by white men. And so I've done practices like recitations where students will have to do an embodied practice. So they there might be a four-week practice on recitation or on dance. I've done that or on breathing practices or walking practices. So I've tried to think in as many ways as possible of how Buddhists use their bodies and how I can bring that into the classroom so that students have a direct embodied experience of what we're learning about in the content of the course in Buddhist studies. Great. And I I think colleagues might be listening to this and think like this is a a lot of redesign that needs to take place. I, I was actually excited to do that redesign. I just jumped right in and tore up my old syllabus and started from scratch. But if people don't have time to start in that way and they want to sort of dip their foot in, I think just maybe just taking one or two of these ideas and incorporating them into your syllabus next semester and then like see how it goes and then you build on it and gradually you can revamp your class over over time as well. Yeah, I started a little more tentatively. So one of the things I started doing early on is give is recording audio lectures. And so I recorded what I wanted to tell them and asked them to go outside and listen while they're walking or maybe while they're sitting outside. So much of our our education is like sitting in a chair looking at a screen. And there's more to learning than that is what I want to communicate to students. And so that's what I started doing first. Yeah, I I love that idea. And it's so easy. as a starting point, I mean, if we're assigning TED Talks or, lec- or recorded lectures by other people, I mean, you don't need to see the video on those anyway, right? So so turn them into audio files and have students walk around outside, I think is a, it's a very low cost, low investment way of getting into integrating some of, some of these practices. Yeah, there's a book called uh, Minding Bodies by Susan Hrotch. And that book has a lot of documents a lot of research on the importance of learning while moving or learning while while being embodied or while being aware of being embodied but then also specifically about learning while moving and how that works better for so many people so we as professors we have trained ourselves well to be able to learn while we're sitting in a chair we spend like many years learning to do that. But for most people, that's not a natural or not the best way to actually take in new information. So uh, listening while you're walking or while you're doing housework or while you're outside doing something is for many people a much better way to take in information. Well, and that, that makes me think about about us and our own practices, you know, to what extent we can also take some of these lessons on board for our own learning and our own academic practice. So I guess in the classroom, I, I stand up, walk around, and, and I'm constantly moving. And I'm encouraging students to get up and, and do the same. But there are plenty of other times where I'm just sitting at my at my desk and I'm trying to think about how to, how to incorporate a more diverse range of motion within my own scholarly practice throughout the day. So yeah, I taught a class a number of years on walking on the history and culture of walking. And so I learned a lot when in teaching that class. And one, one thing I learned is the long tradition of walking among philosophers. So many, many of them like very famous philosophers have written books and articles on their practice of walking. And so at that time, as I was teaching that class, or as I was preparing for it, I started doing a lot of walking because I wanted to like figure out what this was all about and realized that indeed if I walk for about 45 minutes that's my time I can really have some insights that I 
don't have otherwise. I don't have time to have when I'm sitting at my chair with my email like pinging at me constantly. And so then I started doing a 45 minute walk every day and thinking of that, okay, this is my work. I'm going to solve this problem or think about this problem during this 45 minute practice of just going for a walk. Yeah, I have a very similar practice, uh, 45 minute to an hour walk every day. I've done it every day for for three years. So I I agree. I think that's a very undervalued use of your time. I mean, it seems like, oh, I couldn't possibly fit 45 minutes to 60 minutes walk into my day on top of everything else I'm doing. But the the return on investment is enormous, I think. Exactly. If you think of it as work, you realize that it is beneficial to your work in all kinds of ways. Not only that you're solving problems, but also that your body feels refreshed and your mind is more alert. Yeah. Can I count that as research activities on my uh, my annual report? (laughs) 500 hours of walking this year. (laughs) I think we should start doing that. Yeah. I think we should be careful too, though, to point out that not every one has a positive experience of walking and not everyone does walk or can walk and so if we're assigning this thing or like valorizing it as a practice for students we have to be aware that for some people walking is painful and and for other people walking isn't possible and so we need to have options and also to think about embodiment or embodied practices in a classroom has to recognize that everyone's body moves differently and that's okay. Hmm. So how do you deal with that in your syllabus? I mean, is it like the assignment is to walk and then here are the alternatives or is the assignment to move and here's a range of possibilities or yeah. how, do you, how do you communicate it? I think I've been evolving that. I, I did start out by assigning walking and then, and then the alternative was something was lying down. But I, I would like to reframe how I'm presenting that in the way that I'm describing because I really want to be careful not to valorize the embodied experience that I have or the embodied capacity that I have because that's just replicating the model of education that I'm precisely trying to avoid. Yeah. So, Francis, should we talk about ungrading as well as as a to practice that intersects with all of the things we're talking about here? Or maybe maybe explain first what ungrading is and then tell us what the what the benefits might be? Yeah. I've been doing ungrading for the last number of years, and so this is a movement that is called ungrading by some people, where the instructor does not assign all the grades for all the work in the class. So it's a model where we're separating assessment from feedback. So assessment is, I deem your work worthy of an A, whereas feedback is, let me tell you all the things that your work has been really successful at and where you could improve and so forth. So feedback is my discussion of your work. Assessment is just like I stamp you with an A or with a D or whatever. And so I've been trying to get away from assessing students' work more and more. And there are lots of great resources online. I would start, for people interested, I would start with Jesse Stommel's website, which is where I started. And he's done a ton of research and has a lot of experience with all different kinds of ungrading. There's also a wonderful book by Susan Bloom called Ungrading that describes ungrading in all kinds of disciplines, not only in the humanities, but also in the sciences. And so the way I've done it mostly is to have students write questionnaires where they will reflect on, think about, and discuss the work that they've done, what they've learned, how they've connected the the work of this particular project to other aspects of the class, to other things they've read, other things they've experienced, to other things in their life, whatever is relevant in the particular example. 
and they fill out this questionnaire. So this is a metacognitive reflection on the process of learning and that they will undergo. And then they will say, because I do, in fact, have to give grades to my administrators, they will say, the students will say what grade they, th- they think they should have based on the work that they've done and how, how they've reflected on, on that experience. And you might think that students would give themselves all A's. But in fact, interestingly, there may be a, a small, very small proportion of students who will inflate their grades in ways that I think is unjustified. But that's the same proportion of students who probably would be cheating in another environment. Whereas the vast majority of students really give themselves an honest assessment of what the experience of learning was like for them, and then the grade that they think they should get. And so the grade distribution that I have now is about the same as what it was before when I was doing traditional style of grading myself. But what is not the same is the experience that the students have of the class. The feedback that they give on this experience is just like incredible. They say that their learning, their capacity to learn is just completely like liberated. So without the stress, the pressure of a grade and needing to perform for me in order to get a grade that I'm going to give them, they can just be liberated to learn what is meaningful and interesting and important to them. And the work that I get from in these classes is so much better than anything I've gotten in the past, because the students are really taking ownership of their own educational experience and of the content in a way that they don't feel empowered to do otherwise. And so for me, ungrading really fits in as a healing-centered or trauma-aware practice in a classroom because it takes away the coercion that grades are all about. And it allows students to feel kind of empowered and it allows what counts to them to, to matter. And the final thing I'll say about that is, um, you know, all students come into the classroom at a different place. And yet somehow in a traditional classroom, we expect them all to end at the same place. And that's the place that I've designated as the A place or the B place or whatever. But that's so unrealistic. Like students come in a different at a different place. Why should they all get to the same place? So if somebody comes in in one, one place and gets to here, another person comes in one place and gets there, you know, that's okay. If somebody learns 10 things, somebody else learns five things, but those five things change their life, isn't that a success? Yeah, I I can echo everything that you've just said. I've been doing ungrading for a couple of years now. And yeah, the change in the classroom atmosphere, the change in students' engagement, the change in my own feeling in the classroom as that I'm not there as like the expert who's here to judge and and blame and hand out grades. It it has completely changed my own teaching experience and yeah, positive shifts all around, I think. So, so I'm, I'm curious about your fundamental motivation for teaching the way that you teach Francis. Is it coming from a place of like concern about ethics of teaching? Is it coming from a place of like concern about power and the institution? Um, is it coming out of Buddhism? Is it coming out of your own biography and your own experiences with embodiment and so forth? I would say for me, I mean, ultimately teaching isn't separate from 
the rest of my life. And in my whole life, I'm trying to become more open, become more loving, become more vulnerable, become just a better person. And, and to me, teaching isn't like a separate domain that like I, I do all this in my life and then I step into the classroom and I do things differently. So for me, it's like my own development as a person, you could say just across all domains includes pedagogy and it includes wanting to become more and more sensitive and better and better at what I do in the classroom. And so this to me makes sense as the the tools or the, the methods of making my teaching part of my own spiritual practice. I mean, that may be a little much for some people. You know, that that's where my question is coming from. Yeah, I think I, w- I would agree with that. That's true for me too. Maybe I, I don't call it my spiritual practice, but it is a practice of self-development, becoming a more authentic person, I guess. Also just thinking students, they come into the classroom and we owe them the best that we have. So we have to figure out how we can be the best that we can be. And so when I step into a classroom, it's I really have to look each student in the eye with care and compassion. And if you care for each student so intently, like so thoroughly and authentically, you can't like teach in the university the way the university asks you to do. That doesn't align with my values. That's not the person that I want to be. It is the person that I was when I first started teaching because I didn't know that there was any alternative. I'd never been in a classroom that was like the classroom I create now. But over the years, as I've become, like you say, in my own life, wanting to be more authentic, I suppose, that has to be true in the classroom too. And that means that I have to get rid of so much of what is traditionally expected or demanded. Liberating our pedagogy from the yeah. from the constraints of the institution. Yeah. How can I show up in this space as my full self, as my full authentic being? You can't do that without without being fully present. Yeah. Right? And so and once you're fully present, then you you realize that what we're doing isn't working and we need to do things differently. Yeah. Yeah, when I first came upon ungrading and starting started doing that, I really was just so relieved. I think I had felt just like I was engaged in really unethical practice in the years before when I was just grading in the usual way. That always felt, at the end of the semester, when I have to like do the grades and stuff, I felt like a bad person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew that wasn't right, but I didn't know what that there was an alternative yeah likewise likewise so so francis here's what can we say to our colleagues who are untenured faculty members or even graduate students or or adjunct faculty members who feel like this is really interesting but i don't know if i can get away with it within the institutional context I, i I personally, I think that some of the resources that you've pointed out by scholars who who are in the field of teaching and learning, they are providing, I think, a lot of theoretical, you know, support for these kinds of practices. And so I would Again, just point people to the show notes where we'll have all of these listed. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what your advice would be for people who don't have the protection of tenure to be able to get started in this. Yeah, there are lots of examples in um, Jesse Stommel's work, also Susan Bloom's work on ungrading, also Kate Denial's work, Pedagogy of Kindness. There are lots of examples of people in different disciplines and at different levels in their careers doing this work. And so 
It may be easier than one thinks. Some people may be in a situation where they can't do something like any sort of ungrading, any of the versions of ungrading. Maybe they don't have, they're not allowed to tinker with the syllabus. They're just assigned a course. And Jesse Stommel has spoken to things that we can do in those cases. And Kate Denial also has spoken about ways that we can interact compassionately with students in those cases. And so I think there are stages of being able to implement this. And I would say that people could just try to connect with other scholars who are doing that. And, you know, it's it's a little bit under the radar. So even me, I'm constantly learning about new people around University of Toronto, which is a very conservative place, who are doing ungrading, but it's not really spoken about too loudly. But there's a lot of people doing it. So I guess the final question that I have for you along these lines is I, I'm also concerned about somebody who's listening to the podcast and thinking, oh, great. Now I got to add all these other things on top of what I was already doing. I have to rethink my pedagogy. I have to revamp my syllabus. I have to do X, Y, and Z. Like taking this on as like um, another thing on the to-do list, another thing weighing on your time. And um, I guess I wanted to end, end on a note of the importance of of self-care for the individual professor and just like all of the things that we're talking about really to me begin with with compassion and care and trauma awareness for yourself right coming into the classroom from a place of presence and strength and, and resilience yourself and so I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about that a, a little bit like what what some suggestions you might have for people in that area yeah definitely we all should take care of ourselves first that's for sure and it does mean working less. And so I guess it's kind of a personal thing. We have to investigate for ourselves whether writing that next book is more important to us than revising our relationship with our students, for example, or increasing our movement practices ourselves. And I can't say for other people, I had to really reassess what, what kinds of things were more important for for me to spend my time on. And having a more ethical relationship with my students was really at the top of the list. You know, and it depends on where you are in your career. Of course, when I was pre-tenured, at the top of the list was writing that book. But a career can be long, and we have to um, give time to the things that are most important to us. I do spend a lot of time engaged in exercise. I think a lot about nutrition, eating well, I spend time on that, cooking myself, preparing healthy meals, taking care of my children, sleeping well. I, like not all of that comes at the top of my priority list before my job ever. Yeah, because that, that task list is endless, right? The task list for the job is is a bottomless pit. If you checked 10 items off the list or you checked 100 items off the list, it's still a bottomless pit. So, so you should definitely take care of yourself first and then get through as much as you can. But it's also, for, for many of us, it's created by ourselves. And another thing I'm thinking about is some of these things that you're talking about, Francis, actually wind up saving you time. Like some of these more collaborative interactions with students takes away some of the need for you to prep your lectures because you're going to do a collaborative exercise where the students are going to be contributing to the to the design of the assignment for example a lot of these practices really have to do with letting go of control too and so being comfortable with emergent outcomes as i was saying means entering a classroom and not really knowing what's going to happen and so being what for some of us that feels like being unprepared and 
But then once you lean into that a little bit and gain confidence over time in your ability to create a learning experience that's powerful for the students on the spot, then that saves you maybe on on the prep time that I would have done in the past when I did lecture. Well, what would you say to people who are concerned about coverage? Like if I do what Francis is saying, it's going to mean that I have to reduce my content 80% or 60% or what have you in order to incorporate these other things. And then I won't have as much coverage in my class. I think that's a frequent pushback that, that we hear. That will be true, but it's for the instructor to think about what actually matters the most. So for example, I've taught Introduction to Buddhism many, many times over the years, and I've taught it in many different ways. And I used to follow the textbook model pretty much when I first started teaching, and I covered that content because I thought that's what's important about teaching Introduction to Buddhism. But over time, I gave up more and more of that in favor of some of these other learning experiences that I found to be more valuable and impactful for students. And then the fact whether or not you taught about such and such piece of content from the textbook becomes less important. Yeah. yeah. But that's an individual decision to make. Yeah, I think for me, the most liberating question was when I asked myself, what do I think these students are going to remember 20 years from now or 30 years from now? And it turns out like when I was lecturing on content, probably nothing. (laughs) Yeah. But shifting into this mode of pedagogy, we can create some really memorable, really impactful, really transformative experiences for students in the classroom that they will remember. And there's lots of science on that, too. If if somebody needs convincing about what students remember long term, you can read up on that topic. Well, I just remember from my own un- undergraduate days, I don't remember anything yeah. from back then except for one or two yeah, experiences yeah. that were different and, and impactful. You remember meaningful interactions with professors yeah. who really seem to take an interest in your learning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, thanks so much, Francis, for sharing everything that you've shared with us today. I'm wondering, did we miss anything? Is there anything that you want to add to the conversation before we wrap up? Uh, not that I can think of. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you in this conversation that was really stimulating yeah well i'm I'm really grateful that you were here i i like i said i've been following your work in this area and and learned so much from you and i'm it's really my pleasure to help to get the word out a little bit about these things and so if if listeners are interested in more information about you and your approaches i think you have a couple of a couple of different websites and, and online projects that we can link to in the show notes. I don't I don't know if you want to mention any of them here or we'll just link to them. It's up to you. I think my website, francisgarrett.info, has links to most of my online projects and activities. I can mention one other project that I've been involved in that is called Windvane, and it's a website at windvane.life that is based on about almost 100 interviews I and small videos I did with professors focused on multidisciplinary aspects of well-being and how it can play a role in students' lives and in, in the classroom. And a lot of what I've discussed is described on that website on Winvane. It includes some tips for how to integrate practices of well-being into your classroom. But then also these 100 videos are really great resources for assigning to students to help them think about different aspects of practice and life that they could work on in the context of being a student and even in the classroom. Fantastic. So yeah, really appreciate having you here and uh, look forward to whatever's coming next, I'll be following it, I'm sure. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. 
That's it for today from us at the Blue Barrel Podcast. This episode was hosted by Pierce Alguero and produced and edited by me, Lan Lee. All of our music is by Jonathan Pettit, and our interns are Meda Ghosh and Nathan Santos. If you're listening to us on one of our partner podcasts, make sure to catch all of our episodes on PierceAlguero.com or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also support us by making a donation at patreon.com slash blue barrel. Until next time, be happy and be well. <laughs>